not mean division and community. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Stay Curious, a podcast where we want to create diversity in thought without also creating division in community, and where we want to make a space and a time for you to remember how to think instead of tell you what you should think. My name's Matt Fisher. I'm the co-host and the creative director here at Hill City, where we record this and every podcast, and I'm here with my co-host... Mr. John Wagler. Wags, what's yeah. going on today? Yes, sir. Um, still warm out. Great. <laughs> you love the... I do the love warm. Unseasonably warm weather. And I really want to have an episode about the halftime show. Oh, boy, but... do you. <laughs> but... You're not the only one who wants us to have an episode. <laughs> but we'll do that another point. We'll nah, do that we're going to have point. to find some ladies to be on that episode. <laughs> I know. It's um, true. But uh, the reason we're not doing that is because we're kicking off Black History Month. Yeah, that's so, awesome. We're super excited. Yeah, so for the next couple of episodes and the rest of the month, we're going to be elevating black voices on a bunch of different topics um, and just making sure that we celebrate the month as well it should be celebrated. Um, and then going into next month and the month after that, that we continue to celebrate diversity and our brothers and sisters of all backgrounds and races. Yeah. Um, and to kick that off, we have a very special guest with us uh, joining um, over the phone. We have with us Mr. Gerard Robinson. He is the executive director at the Center for Advancing Opportunity. Um, and he's joining us via Zoom call. Gerard, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, so just tell us a little bit um, right off the top about sort of what your background is and what the Center for Advancing Opportunity does. So the Center for Advancing Opportunity is an education and research uh, initiative that was created between uh, well, created between a partnership between the Thurgood Marshall College Fund, Charles Koch Foundation and Koch Industries. And the goal of CAO is to identify barriers, but also to identify solutions to problems impacting people who live in fragile communities throughout the United States. And we do that by making investments into students and scholars who work or attend historically black colleges and universities, as well as other institutions. And given the fact that this is Black History Month, uh, it's a great time to you know celebrate the work that Thurgood Marshall uh, played in not only desegregating uh, the oil, getting what I call getting rid of Jim Crow from the front of the classroom uh, via the 1954 Brown decision, but he also played a pretty big role in uh, in, in addressing criminal justice issues uh, as well. And so um, his namesake is uh, you know just so so popular. Very cool. Awesome. Well, thanks for that little bit of background. So one of the reasons that we wanted to have you on today um, was to talk a little bit about your work, but also because we were interested um, in sort of what it's like um, for you as a black man in America in 2020 um, to be part of uh, sort of a, a GOP or a Republican landscape. Um, you are a how would you sort of identify yourself as, as far as political party line uh, is concerned? So I'm a Republican. Uh, I joined the Republican Party in 1992. Mm -hmm. uh, prior to that point in my life, I had been uh, a Democrat, uh, as was my mom and dad, and her mom and dad uh, kind of tradition work. I think what changed for me was the Rodney King riots of 1992. Some call them the Rodney King uprising. Mm -hmm. And I just spent, you know, more than a week going to community meetings when, when school was closed just to listen to what solutions our community was discussing to rebuild out Los Angeles. I heard everything from 
South Central Los Angeles needing $2 billion, and surely $2 billion of any investment would be helpful. I also heard uh, requests that we have more community involvement in the distribution of school of funds for schools, that there be better police community relationships, things that we still talk about today. Uh, but what I did not hear a great deal about was economic development that did not rely solely on uh, federal, state, and local investments. That's important. There's also a private sector part. I also didn't hear a great deal about uh, parental choice, uh, opportunities both inside and outside traditional public schools. And also he didn't hear really being anything innovative about how do we use public policy to change, as you would say, how to think about the problem. Mm-hmm. You know, I often think that when people talk about entrepreneurship, they think it's an exercise in business. Well, that's one articulation of it. But for me, entrepreneurship is a frame of mind. An entrepreneur will, well, I'll brush it back up. A bureaucrat will look at a, uh, an issue uh, or an opportunity and call it a problem. Where the, oper- where the entrepreneur will look at the problem and call it an opportunity. And so as life would have it, I ended up meeting uh, some black Republicans who were in uh, the Crenshaw area of Los Angeles where I grew up and worked. And uh, they were Republicans. And they worked. Uh, they were part of the Frederick Douglass East-West Republican headquarters. And I got to be shocked. I mean, I got to be honest. I was shocked to know there were black Republicans, first of all, uh, in our neighborhood, but more importantly, that a headquarters was located not too far away uh, from where I had grown up. And so I spent time with them and uh, made the crazy decision, as my parents said, to join the GOP. And there were three issues uh, that were important to me. One was parental choice as it relates to education, both K through 20. Second was smarter government, not necessarily smart, uh, smaller, but smarter. And then third was uh, tax policy. And uh, put in mind, this is 92, uh, this is uh, Bill Clinton, uh, first black president at that time uh, as a candidate. It wasn't popular then. Fast forward to 2019, I'm still uh, with the GOP, and the criticisms I heard in 1992 are still the ones that are shared in 2020. Hmm. Did you face uh, with your family, was there a lot of backlash from that? Well, absolutely. Uh, Well, first of all, when you decide to become a black Republican in some segments of our community, that's considered race treason. Mm -hmm. That the worst thing you could do is join a party that is 100% opposite of everything we stand for. So that's one part. Uh, Number two, you know, there are not a lot of black people in the Republican Party. So just the small minority aspect of it is just call for question. And then third, when you're seen as a race traitor, what you decide to support is always viewed through the lens of conspiracy. There's got to be an angle. Somehow he's trying to destroy our community. But those concerns are not without merit. You know, we've had Republican, uh, Republican candidates, local, uh, state level, who run for office, who run, uh, for example, against affirmative action, uh, which has been something to have helped uh, many minority-owned businesses, although many white women have benefited as well, uh, who taken stances against real, meaningful school integration busing programs. There is a role for that as well. Uh, and there were also people who took stances against trying to fund uh, black-owned businesses either through redlining or changing the rules in the middle of the game in order to steer money away from those communities. 
And there are also people who are affiliated with the Republican Party then and now uh, who have what I would call an unreconstructed heart and mind who still believe that black people should be on the back of the bus. I'm very clear about that. Mm. Those aren't really most of the Republicans that I'm hanging around with, but I understand why we see that, see the world that way. What do you, from your perspective as a black GOP member, especially knowing that, you know, that kind of became your thing in 1992. So you've seen this wild, you've been on this wild ride, um, you know, over the last couple of decades, what is it about the Republican Party that does seem to, and I understand it's a very small grouping, but does seem to attract that still thinks black people should be on the back of the bus element? What's the misconception about Republican politics or ideologies that seems to draw in that particular type from your perspective? Well, I don't think they're drawn in. I think they've always been there. But the assumption is that they also aren't in the Democratic Party. And they are in the Democratic Party. Mm. I tell people, would I like to see some more brothers and sisters join the Republican Party? Absolutely. It's not going to happen anytime soon. Uh, although, although I do believe that our current uh, RNC chair is doing a great job in terms of outreach, that's a national approach. There's more work that needs to be done local and state. But I say... Where you really see the change are the number of blacks who are leading the Democratic Party to become independents or to become libertarians. And the number of friends who I know who left the Democratic Party in the 90s up to now, some of them talked about the racism uh, in the party. Some of them talked about the paternalism in the party. Now, just think about it. You've got a party that from 1976 to 20, uh, well, to 2016, uh, they gave at us. We gave more than 82% of our vote to the national candidates for the Democratic Party. Uh, no other group has had that kind of number. And yet, when you look at the DNC, with the exception of Ron Brown, you don't see African-Americans in major positions within the Democratic Party. When you had an opportunity to elect Mayor uh, Wells from Denver to be the DNC chair, you didn't do so. You picked someone else. When you had a chance to take... Maynard Jackson, who was uh, Atlanta mayor, deep uh, South City, uh, heavy blue, turning it, walking across the aisle. When you had a chance to make him the DNC chair, you did not. And when you had a chance to do some things with Donna Brazil, uh, you brought her in to have to do some of the cleanup uh, that you needed, but there hasn't been any play. And so what we call uh, straight up racism in the Republican Party I think there's equal questions about straight-up paternalism. We call it a different name, but at the end of the day, there are still some challenges. So I wouldn't say that there was something per se about the party. Now, with that said, if you believe in uh, states' rights, if you believe in less federal government, then yeah, you will probably find a better home in the Republican Party. Those often have been cold words for segregation, uh, for white supremacy, for uh, white power. And that goes back to the 50s with Brown v. Board moving forward. So I can understand very well how some of the things we support, which is why I say smarter government, not necessarily smaller government, knowing how many African-Americans have gained middle-class status in part through jobs, through government institutions, schools, uh, local government, federal government, state government. Um, I, I understand that part. Hmm. It's interesting. Do you think that there are 
particular issues. Like I know uh, a friend of mine who is black, he and I were having this discussion and he asked me, Hey, uh, why is abortion such a big deal for white people? Because growing up, that was never really part of his conversation politically. Do you, do you think that something like that is a dividing line sometimes as well or no? The black community as pro-choice and pro-life people, I think it gets politicized at the national level when we have conversation about cultural wars. Now, you go back pre-Roe uh, v. Wade, it's not as if African-Americans were not participating in abortion, but you also had a segment of the community who was pro-life. You think about today, there are a number of Democrats who are black who are going to vote for uh, the nominee who are pro-choice. So it's always been a pro-choice, pro-life segment within the black community. It gets politicized, I think, maybe a little more by the right, uh, in part because as a party, uh, the stance has been uh, pro-life. President Trump being the first president to speak at the National uh, uh, Right to Life Rally. I may have the name wrong, but the National Life Rally. And uh, first of all, the first president to do so in and of itself says a lot. But it's not as if uh, there aren't you know, people on both sides of the fence in the black community, as with most public policy issues. Right. So you kind of... Um... Like right up front in your story, part of your story was backlash from, you know, your parents, from your community about, oh, my gosh, why would you align yourself with this entity or this party that um, they perceive as being anti-black or um, pro-white supremacy or, you know, pro things that are aligned with things that would seem to be against who you are and what you're about. Um, So that kind of answers one of my questions, which was, is it? Is it an actual uh, reality or a perceived reality that um, the black community generally is, you know, votes Democrat? Um, But on the flip side of that, what has been a challenge for you um, since 1992 as a black man in, you know, a, a Republican or a GOP space? When people say it's horrible that you're a black Republican or that I'm ashamed of you. And I've had people say that Hmm. I've had people who found out that I was Republican and um, uninvited me to events. Hmm. And what I say is there are worse things in life than being a black Republican. And one of them is to be black and not about the business of building the Republic. I believe that if you're not at the table, you're on the menu and that if you're on the menu, hopefully you realize that. And so I think it's politically expedient to have people on all sides of the fence. There's some black people who are doing great things that we know very little about. We're either working in DC for the Trump administration, working for a Republican governor, a mayor, a city council member, school board member, or otherwise. And so, yes, I understand the backlash that comes along with it, but there are enough people who realize, listen, Where can we find common ground? Think about it. When you talk about, for example, charter schools, charter schools, in fact, were created by Democrats. It started in the state of Minnesota, supported by the Democratic Party. California became the second state with a charter law sponsored by a Democrat. You looked at Massachusetts, a strong uh, blue state supported by a Democrat. The first Democratic, uh, well, I guess Clinton was the first president to create what we call charter school week. And so there are places where we can find bipartisanship. 
you don't you wouldn't have a great charter move in the South, for example, without support from Republicans. But you also have issues like criminal justice. You have even now Senator Scott from um, South Carolina, his um, opportunity zones uh, throughout the country. You know, there's bipartisan support for that. So I think we can debate labels. That's real. Uh, we can talk about racism. That's real. We can talk about inequality. That's real. But while, we ha- while we're having that conversation, let's wrap our hands around three common ground areas and let's work on that. Often when I tell people, I don't want to boil the ocean to cook an egg. If someone's hungry, let's get a pot, water, fire, let's boil the egg, let's feed that person. And in the process of that, we can try to figure out how to address the other issues along the way. So, man, you brought a ton of fantastic perspective to this for me anyway. Um, And I think spoke a lot of truth and and given us a lot of insight. Um, But it seems like regardless of what, from your perspective or even our perspective or anybody's what what may really be going on or what like the Republican Party may really be about or what it means to you and how it's worked in your life. It does seem like right now, especially um, there's a public perception problem like people um, use GOP interchangeably with white supremacists nowadays. I mean, it's very radicalized on Twitter and, and all that stuff. And of course, everybody's got an opinion. But with a public perception problem as bad as it is sort of in the Trump era, what do you think is something that the GOP, like that your party could do to combat that perception that, oh, the Republican Party is the party of white evangelicals? Does that make sense? Well, the assumption is the term white evangelical is something bad. Mm. The white evangelicals, in fact, played a role in helping to get rid of slavery in the South. It was it was a number of evangelicals who partnered doing the um, radical, well, I would, I would call it really uh, the Reconstruction period, 1865 to 1877, before we had the, uh, the compromise. There were a number of evangelicals who worked to move that forward. There were a number of white evangelicals who supported Dr. King when he was working, and there were a number of evangelicals from the 80s onward. Partners. So the fact that we mentioned white evangelical to mean Nazi uh, is maybe something we're feeding into it. Now, with that said, I'm not sure what the party can do to change the image, because if I simply believe you're a racist and a white supremacist, I'm not sure what I can say to change your mind. Mm. I'm just not. Uh, I also believe that the opposite. What about the white supremacist? who call themselves supremacists because they believe in black inferiority. Even though we have a black president, even though we've sent black people to outer space, even though we've had black secretaries of education, even though we've had uh, or have black billionaires, a white supremacist who still believes that black people genetically or otherwise are inferior, there's simply nothing I can do to change that. Let's just take sports, for example. We had uh, a black quarterback for Kansas City who just won the Super Bowl. The criticism against black quarterbacks going back to the 70s is a quarterback who moves too much, who's got too much swag, who can't stay in the pocket, can't win a championship. Well, he won. But the assumption is this is new. What about when Doug uh, Williams won the Super Bowl for uh, the Washington Redskins? What about the fact that when he was in college, they said the same thing about him? So even with examples 
to tell you otherwise. If you don't want to believe it, you can't change the perception. Good. What, what do you think is one thing you would love kind of the general public that isn't involved in politics on a daily level, just, you know, is fed whatever they're fed on their, you know, social media platform of choice or whatever. What's like one or two things you would just like the general public to know that might go against the narrative that is typically thought of when it comes to politics in general? Politics in general, well, A, people are so fired up about what's taking place in the halls of Congress, uh, in the White House, and in the Supreme Court, that they overlook the fact, or sometimes just forget to exhale and realize, as Tipper uh, uh, O'Neill said many years ago, all politics are local. If you're concerned about education, looking at the U.S. Department of Education, and let's say you're getting mad at uh, Secretary Betsy DeVos, is one thing, but when only 10% of the investment going into your public school systems coming from the federal government, and when, you know, 40 plus percent, nice split uh, coming between state and local money, have you been to a local school board meeting? Have you written an op-ed in your local newspaper to raise questions about funding or overcrowding? How do we pay teachers better? So I think that we should really focus at the local level. Uh, number two is do a, uh, a diverse go online and just look at websites or news sites that you really wouldn't listen to. So my friends who listen to CNN, I say, hey, take a look at Fox. Take a look at Fox Nation. Those who only watch Fox, look at MSNBC or CNN. I do think that we need to move beyond just getting information from sources that confirm our own biases and prejudices. I understand why we do it. But I think those are two things that we can do because we've ratcheted, ratcheted up the hate uh, to a point that I just think is unhealthy for the nation. And to go to your, your previous question about, uh, about race uh, and perception, if you look at the language used against Ronald Reagan when he ran, George H.W. Bush when he ran, George W. Bush when he ran, and Trump, it's not the first time that someone's referred to any of those candidates as a Nazi. It's not the first time they referred to any of those candidates as leaders of white supremacy. And this was before uh, Charlottesville. Uh, this was before uh, Black Lives Matter. There's just a narrative in place. Maybe it's valid. Maybe I'm the one that's blind. Maybe I'm actually overlooking this. So I, too, have to make sure that my eyes are open and to see reality for what it is, maybe not what I want it to be. That's good. That's good. Uh, you know, we haven't talked any, really much about like the faith element or your faith background. Um, and I, I, I don't know if you feel comfortable talking around kind of how your faith plays into your uh, viewpoints or um, maybe even uh, as a person. I know um, we have a common friend in Janet Kelly and, um, you know, maybe just kind of share with people like, sometimes it can be difficult to have your faith and in, in the realm of politics and government. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and maybe the struggles that might be? Uh, I'm a man of faith, but I've never used that as a platform 
to talk about politics mm-hmm. or how it shapes my policy. Uh, my support, for example, for good schools and you know good traditional public schools. Um, as a man of faith, I want to see good public schools because the majority of our children are going to receive an education there. And if there's ways that we can inculcate uh, values, uh, a, a belief system, philosophies, support culture, I think that's great. You can do that from uh, one of the three major faith traditions. You can even do that as someone without a faith tradition. So I do believe for Republicans or conservatives who uh, work in the faith to, uh, area, who use that to drive their public policy uh, publicly, uh, it's a challenge. But I don't think it's just for the GOP. I think it's also for uh, uh, pastors who are in public office as well. Uh, it's tough. Uh, it's nothing new. Uh, they're just, there's just, I mean, <laughs> think about the fact that when you have uh, William Penn, who's the founder of uh, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, who went to jail for a number of times for not only being a Quaker, but using his faith as a way of challenging the establishment of the established religion of that time, not only in Pennsylvania, yes, primarily but the United States. Look at the number of priests, rabbis, um, uh, pastors, whether it's Catholic, priests, whether it's Episcopal or Catholic, uh, and nuns uh, who found themselves imprisoned, uh, tortured, or killed, uh, maybe not per se in the United States, uh, but throughout North America, for bringing faith into the politics. We saw a lot of this in the 1980s. We called it, quote-unquote, the Cultural War. Some of that was driven by the commentary coming from Pat uh, Robinson from uh, 700 Club, some of it coming from other candidates. You don't see a great deal of that, per se, in the 2016 election. We didn't see much in the uh, 2012. There was a point when Romney was running for office and uh, Huckabee was running for office where someone raised a question of, do you believe the Bible is the word of God as is without error? And you should go back and take a look and see how people answer that question. People may talk less about faith. We may have politicized it. Uh, less than we did in the 1980s, but in no way means that faith isn't involved in people's work. Some are more public than others. I choose uh, to work publicly, but have and exercise my faith private. Hmm. Um, so I think I have one more question. Um, you have a passion for education and a ton of great experience working in the education realm. You've talked about it a lot. Um, just in the couple minutes that we've been on the phone. Um, do you think that the breakdown of public education in our country over the last however many years is the reason that we're so polarized and easily swayed into camps by media and social media now? Like, is there, in your eyes, a connection between the breakdown of teaching people how to think and now what we, the, the sort of culture war that we're engaged in? For K-12 education or education writ large? Uh, let's say K-12 through education. Like, is the fact that there's some brokenness in our education system um, the cause of now having voting adults who are not necessarily able to delineate between um, good information and bad information uh, when it comes to politics? Uh, as someone who supports the free market, I have to take in the good with the bad. As someone who supports the idea that we should use technology to disseminate information 
to as many people as possible, uh, as efficiently as possible, you also have to live with the challenge of information overload. We have really smart, credentialed, educated people who, for any reason, you would say, yeah, that's a smart person, who make make really, uh, I don't like the term, who make less strategic decisions. It's not because they're not educated. They're very literate. It's just that there's so much information that there's just a challenge on how do we, you know, distill all of that pretty quickly. So I think there's an information overload uh, challenge. Number two, what education means in 2020 isn't the same as in, let's say, 1940. When we said the word education in 1940, we automatically thought about a school building. We automatically thought about a row of classes. Uh, we automatically thought uh, about a teacher may have been uh, more male today, 70% of the teachers are female. When you say education today, it's a smorgasbord. There are students who are in a traditional building. Yes, in a traditional building, yes, but you also have students who are taking classes inside of a school building and who are taking classes online. You have sub-students who are totally online. You have students who are taking classes at a public school for some coursework and now are taking classes at a private school. So I think the, the, the diversity of options has also wrangled up the question of what truly is a public school. I often say public school is more than just a name. It's got to be a school working in the public's interest. The third thing about education is what role does faith play in education? Uh, there was a time where the reading of the Bible uh, was okay. And there was a time where it was not, where there's been a movement for over two decades to bring the Bible back into uh, circulation in public schools, if nothing more than to talk about it as a document of literature or as a document to talk about history. Now, that rubs people the wrong way because they want to talk about it for what it is. But some people said, hey, this is the Faustian bargain. If it means this is how we get the Bible into schools, that's great. If it means we have the Bible and after-school programs, uh, that's fine. So I think that our public schools or education school education in general uh, in the United States is moving in the right direction. We've got over 85% of the students who are graduated from high school, greater number than it was 15 years ago, more first-generation students uh, who are taking and passing uh, uh, AP classes, uh, college prep classes. We now have, for the first time in American history, the average college student isn't someone under 18 living in a dorm and throwing a Frisbee. It's someone over the age of 25, likely working a part-time job, but not the traditional students. So we've got challenges, but I remain optimistic because I do believe through technology, I do believe by um, uh, working closer with principals and, and teachers to give them the kind of professional support they need and by empowering parents, but encouraging students to think like entrepreneurs that some of the brokenness that we have that the solutions, in fact, will come from the local level and will move up, not per se from D.C. down. Awesome. Cool. Well, thanks. Um, Gerard, we don't want to keep you all day because uh, we know you're a busy guy. So thank you so, so much for coming on the show and, and chatting with us about this. Well, first of all, thank you. Well, I should say thank you again for the invitation. And since we're looking at Black History Month, let's just take a moment to celebrate uh, the work that Carter G. Woodson helped put together. Uh, he's the one who helped create what we now know is Black History Month. It started off as Black History Day. Uh, he picked February in part because it's the birthday of a uh, month of Frederick Douglass 
and Abraham Lincoln. Uh, he is the second African-American to earn a Ph.D. from Harvard, first being W.E.B. Du Bois. Uh, but he spent a lot of time chronicling the role that black people have played in creating what we call the American Republic. In many ways, you don't have an America or a republic without black people, including the enslaved Africans who worked for free uh, for over 200 years. But even today, the descendants of the enslaved Africans are making major contributions to American society in education, health, and science, space, underground, and around the world. And so this is just one month, a uh, slice of time to celebrate that. And I want to thank you for letting me be a part of the conversation. Absolutely. Awesome. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. And thanks to everyone out there for listening. Um, if you have questions, comments, concerns, quips, or quotes, you can email them to curious at uh, hillcityrva.com. Uh, follow us on Instagram at staycuriouscast. I'm sorry, Stay Curious Pod, and follow us on Twitter at Stay Curious Cast. Make sure to rate, review us, and share the show. And um, tune in next week for our next installment in our Black History Month uh, Elevating Black Voices series. And remember, as always, stay curious. Stay curious.